1988, the idea that there would be an end to the Troubles was pretty unthinkable for most people living in Northern Ireland. That year, a special forces unit of the British Army hunted down and killed three unarmed members of the IRA in Gibraltar. A funeral was held in Belfast a few days later, and the BBC was there to cover it. The burial service was well underway at the Republican plot in Milltown Cemetery when suddenly there were five explosions among the crowds standing nearest the parked hearses. Within moments, a gunman emerged, firing and throwing grenades at his pursuers. During the service, a loyalist attacked the crowd. He killed three people and injured 60. A few days later, they held a funeral procession for one of the people murdered in the cemetery attack. Two British troops in an unmarked car sped dangerously close to the crowd. This is the BBC again. Good evening. Two soldiers have been killed at an IRA funeral in Belfast this morning. They were dragged out of a car, beaten up, and then shot. It happened at the funeral of Kevin Brady, one of three men killed at Milltown Cemetery on Wednesday. Today's Gibraltar, Milltown Cemetery, and the funeral procession. All of that was just the month of March. In August, Ulster Television aired an episode of The Question Is, which was a chat show. The topic was predicting Northern Ireland's future. And they opened the program with what they imagined a news broadcast from 2008 would look like. And now the local news headlines. Three UVF prisoners who've each served over 30 years in jail are to be released next week, the Northern Ireland office has announced. The men whose names have not been revealed are all in their late 50s. The 15-year-old Belfast boy, injured yesterday when an IRA bomb exploded prematurely, has received a get well message from King Charles. A hospital official said His Majesty spoke to the youth by phone this morning for several minutes. There's good news on the job front. Unemployment has dipped below 30% for the first time in two years. Basically, everything they predicted about 2008 was wrong. All of the Ulster Volunteer Force prisoners had been released years before, and the IRA officially ended their campaign in 2005. Prince Charles was still a prince, and unemployment wasn't at 30%. It was closer to 4 the distance between 1988 and 2008 was unimaginable. People just couldn't see a future that included an end to the conflict. And yet, 1988 was also the year that Jerry Adams and the constitutional nationalist John Hume held a series of talks that today some people mark as the beginning of the peace process. In fact, by then, secret meetings had been going on for years between the IRA and the British government. Back in the United States, everything was in flux. Irish Northern Aid had been given a strong directive from Sinn Féin. It was time to commit to more political work, to engage mainstream politicians in order to leverage American power in Ireland. But to do that, to leverage that power, meant they had to submit to it. This meant dropping the trappings of a militant activist group and accommodating and integrating into the nonprofit industrial complex. The rules of the game were changing. Sinn Féin was looking for political legitimacy, and it needed its partner in the United States to do the same. But a lot of people in the organization just weren't interested. In fact, this felt like a betrayal of their decades of work. In 1989, there was a split that left the organization pretty shaken up. Activists who were committed to the armed struggle and abstentionism left to form new groups, which were even smaller and more marginal. Secret reports from that time show that the FBI was still keeping a pretty close eye on NORAID. Their informants were reporting the organization's finances were withering away. They said that even after the split, there was a power struggle going on, and the whole project seemed to be on unsteady ground. 
It's also in 1989 when a new group appeared in these secret FBI reports. It was called the Friends of Sinn Féin. You might have thought this was just a rebranded NORAID, but it was totally different. Its purpose is to raise funds. It's a political party fundraising organization to garner you know, resources for Sinn Féin to contest elections uh, and to pursue its political strategy. This is Dr. Danielle Zak, a professor at City College in New York. Whereas Irish Northern Aid was focusing on grassroots support, and particularly, again, for Irish Republican prisoners as dependents, which, of course, alleviated the burden of the IRA um, to provide that support. Friends of Sinn Féin, it also engages a much broader social base of Irish America because it's seen as a more legitimate organization. But even with this new challenge from their own side, Norid activists were about to make some of their biggest political moves since the beginning of the Troubles. Leveraging what little power they had, they would start a chain of events that would bring Jerry Adams to the White House and Bill Clinton to Belfast. violent quarter-century struggle against British rule, the Irish Republican Army has announced a ceasefire. Adams is an elected member of the British Parliament. It is a government we recognize. Irish America changed U.S. foreign policy. Irish America changed British policy. This is Foreign Agent, and my name is Nate Levy. This is episode six. In the final episode of this series, we'll look at how the military conflict came to an end for the provisional IRA and for the Irish Northern Aid Committee. It didn't end the way many people would have thought or wanted. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this episode, from Bill Clinton's first brush with NORAID to 9-11, from the Downing Street Declaration to the largest bank robbery in Northern Ireland's history. We'll trace how these things are all connected, and unsurprisingly, a lot of it has to do with money. This episode will also follow Sinn Féin as they continue to drift away from the armed struggle in the 1990s. Their new orientation brought some amount of stability to Northern Ireland, but it also meant accommodating themselves to a neoliberal order and retreating from the politics of liberation. And while they hitched their star to the new American century, NORAID and what was left of the IRA faded from view and passed into a strange and possibly connected afterlife. But before that happened, Norid would force their way onto the national stage one last time. Of course, Norid had always been involved in some sort of political work. In the 1970s, they were actively engaged with the Irish National Caucus, which we discussed in episode three. And they had a history of meeting and working with lots of mainstream politicians, though some came with a checkered past. For example, Mario Biaggi was a 10-term congressman from the Bronx, and before he was elected, he was a police officer in New York. While on duty, he'd been wounded 11 times and had himself killed two people. As a congressman, he helped set up the Ad Hoc Committee for Irish Affairs, a group that was close with Norid and was often criticized for its pro-IRA stance. Biaggi was often featured in the Norid newspaper and attended their events. In 1987, when he was nearly 70 years old, 
Biagi was charged for taking an unlawful gratuity, which began years of legal trouble. Then, in 1988, he was indicted for bribery by a U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York named Rudy Giuliani. After two different trials, Biagi ended up doing a few years in prison. Giuliani himself was no stranger to Norade. He spoke at their events, perhaps courting Irish-American voters, for his upcoming mayoral campaign. Another congressman who was a big Norade supporter was Peter King. He was never a totally seamless fit. He held extremely right-wing political views, but he also believed in Irish republicanism. He once called the IRA the, quote, legitimate voice of occupied Ireland. In his mind, he was somehow able to set aside the leftist policies of Sinn Féin while he took farther and farther right-wing positions on gay marriage, abortion, Islam, and national security. By the 1990s, Nord was aiming higher than just congressmen. The fastest path to mainstream legitimacy was through the White House. It was hard to see how Norad could wrangle that since, historically, representatives of foreign terrorist groups have had a hard time getting through the door. But according to a secret 1990 report obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, it sounded like Norad got pretty close. In early March, the Department of Justice received a tip from an informant within Norad. They said that the group had been able to schedule a meeting with the president, George H.W. Bush, or at least a close aide. As far as the DOJ was concerned, this was a full-on emergency. They called the Secret Service, then the Criminal Investigation Division of the U.S. Army, then the Counterterrorism Section of the FBI, and then others. Somebody had to make sure that the president did not find himself in a room with a person from Irish Northern Aid. Eventually, the Secret Service intervened and had the Norad rep disinvited from the White House. In their report, the FBI patted itself on the back for having, quote, spared the White House from major embarrassment. This didn't keep Norad down for very long. 1992 was an election year, and during the Democratic primary, Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California, and Bill Clinton, who was the governor of Arkansas, were neck and neck. On April 5th, they both appeared at an event in an upstairs room at the Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Governor, I'd like to welcome you to our forum on issues of major importance to the Irish community. We are indebted to you for spending the time with us this evening. Take the room the had been rented out for the night by the Irish-American Presidential Forum, and C-SPAN was there to capture it. The candidates would hear from a panel of Irish-Americans and then face the audience. Clinton got two big questions that night, and the first came from Ray Flynn, the mayor of Boston. And what our question is, would you as President of the United States appoint a special peace envoy to bring all sides of, the, of, uh, of the, the conflict to the table. And that's the question, Governor Clinton. The short answer to your question is yes. During the campaign, Clinton had been giving indications that he had an interest in Northern Ireland. And Irish groups were jostling to get him to make a commitment to get involved if he was elected. Appointing a special envoy would have been a big step and a significant departure from previous administrations. It meant directly entangling the American government in trying to find a resolution to the troubles. Historically, American presidents were reluctant to even discuss the conflict, or if they did, they more or less parroted the British position. The second big question that Clinton got was from Martin Galvin, who we met in episode five. He was the publicity director for Irish Northern Aid. 
Governor Clinton, my first question has to do with the area of visa denial. Now, the fact that Galvin was even on stage with Clinton was a big deal. The FBI kept a running investigation on Norid and referred to them explicitly as a terrorist front group. Now their publicity director was sitting a few feet from a man who might become president. And Martin Galvin made the most of it. My question is, if you were elected president, would you direct the State Department to allow a visa to Jerry Adams and other prominent members of Sinn Féin to allow them to come to the United States to state their views and to just defend them before the American people? A visa for Jerry Adams seems like a small thing. But it wouldn't have been just a departure from previous administrations. This would directly and openly contradict British policy. Adams was banned from speaking on British television, so the prospect of him visiting the United States was seen as a real threat by the UK. Clinton was direct. That, uh, Adams is an elected member of the British Parliament. It is a government we recognize. That government recognizes his legitimacy and right to serve. Uh, I think it would be totally harmless to our national security interest, and it might be enlightening to the political debate in this country about the issues uh, in Ireland. So yes, I would support the visa for Adams and for any other uh, properly elected official from a government we recognize. This was a huge shift, tremendous shift in U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy. This is Dr. Danielle Zak again. On the one hand, it signaled an end to the U.S. attitude that this is purely an internal British matter. The U.S. was going to get involved in an active way in the conflict in terms of steering a peace process or pushing forward negotiations. The United States government was going to become an active actor in what was happening in the North. Clinton's answer also gave Irish Northern Aid a small bit of leverage but they were used to doing a lot with a little. And now that they'd gotten a publicly declared campaign promise, they were going to hold them to it. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. Bill Clinton was sworn into office on January 20th, 1993. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. A few months after the inauguration, Jerry Adams applied for a visa. He was denied. Then, in October, Clinton got a letter from David Dinkins, who was the mayor of New York. Dinkins had been endorsed by Irish Northern Aid, and he asked the president to reconsider Adams' visa request. Clinton wrote back, quote, As you know, Adams has applied on several occasions over the past years for a U.S. visa, and each time he's been refused under U.S. immigration law because of his involvement in terrorist activity. I continue to believe that we should not allow Jerry Adams a waiver. Credible evidence exists that Adams remains involved at the highest level in devising provisional IRA strategy. This was a slap in the face to Irish-American groups like Norid. Martin Galvin even said that he thought the letter had been written by an official of the British government. To Irish Republicans, it seemed like there wasn't going to be any significant change in policy. But in reality, things were actually much more fluid than they seemed. In December 1993, after years of behind-the-scenes negotiations, the heads of the British and Irish governments held a press conference that was covered by C-SPAN. What in practice does the joint declaration say? It says that reconciliation must be founded on consent. 
John Major, who was the British Prime Minister, announced that they'd signed a joint declaration bringing their two government policies into alignment. It closes no doors except the door to violence and illegality. And crucially, it opens the door to those who abandon violence, to those who for decades have shut themselves out. If the provisionals will end and renounce violence for good, the British government is prepared to enter into preliminary exploratory dialogue with Sinn Féin within three months when cessation of violence has been clearly established. The Downing Street Declaration really set the terms for almost everything that followed. It established the first principles around which a peace process could be conceived. But more notably, it created a path for Sinn Féin to enter negotiations as a legitimate party, despite their connections to the IRA. If they'd end their military campaign, they'd get a seat at the table. This set things in motion on the other side of the Atlantic as well. And a few weeks later, Senator Ted Kennedy started making phone calls. He'd been involved with Northern Ireland for decades and had once flirted with more militant Irish republicanism. But by now, he was firmly on the side of constitutional nationalism. He and Chris Dodd, a senator from Connecticut, spoke with Mac McClarty, Clinton's chief of staff, and Sandy Berger, a foreign policy advisor. They had a pretty simple message. To keep the peace process moving forward, it was time to fulfill Clinton's campaign promise and give Jerry Adams a visa. The British Embassy and the U.S. State Department were apoplectic, but Kennedy's maneuvering was enough. On January 31, 1994, Jerry Adams stepped off a plane in New York. It was an important trip, but as NBC reported, it was a quick one. One of Northern Ireland's most controversial figures arrived in the United States today after trying to get here for years. Jerry Adams, head of Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA. He was admitted for just 48 hours to attend a private conference on Northern Ireland. Years later, at an event recorded by Fora TV, Jerry Adams had this to say about it. Irish America changed U.S. foreign policy towards Ireland. The biggest change. Irish America changed British policy towards Ireland. Irish America reached right into number 10 Downing Street, right into government buildings in Dublin, right into the head office of the Ulster Unionist Party. When he stepped off the plane, there were dozens of people there to greet him. And in the footage from the press conference, they're all smiles, clearly feeling on top of the world. They knew what a turning point it was. And you can see Martin Galvin there, too. He reaches out and shakes Adam's hand. But as the press conference goes on, he slowly moves farther and farther from the center until he's almost squeezed out of the shot entirely. During that flurry of diplomatic activity in 1994, the Friends of Sinn Féin filed some paperwork with the DOJ. They were the new fundraising and lobbying group that was taking over from Norade, and an American billionaire named Chuck Feeney gave them around three-quarters of a million dollars to open an office in Washington. Chuck Feeney is an Irish-American, but he wasn't really part of the Irish Republican community. He made his fortune in Hong Kong, where he got in early on the idea of duty-free shopping, and by the mid-1980s, he was in a philanthropic mood, and Sinn Féin was one of his chosen causes. His gift was emblematic of a transition that was just getting underway. Irish Northern Aid had been this scrappy grassroots operation, and middle and working class people gave small donations directly out of their wallets. Or maybe they paid 20 bucks for a subscription to the Norid newspaper. But Sinn Féin saw that an end to the war could be even more expensive, or lucrative, than fighting one. 
They needed full-time staff, real estate, a travel budget. They needed to be running modern political campaigns, and nickels and dimes collected at Irish bars in the Bronx just weren't going to cut it anymore. For decades, Irish Northern Aid was demonized, and its supporters were painted as delusional fanatics. Whereas Friends of Sinn Féin, now that Jerry Adams has been granted the visa, there's a legitimacy as a political actor and is able to also tap into more well-heeled members of Irish America. Sinn Féin did what American political parties do. They turned to the wealthy. If you go to the website of the Department of Justice and look at the top donors to the Friends of Sinn Féin, you'll see construction companies, television executives, and Wall Street traders. They even courted Donald Trump, who attended one of their events in 1995. Jerry Adams stopped in the middle of his speech to shake Trump's hand. But of all their billionaire backers, Chuck Feeney was the biggest. Well, my friends, it's Jerry Adams here. So this week I want to talk to you about my friend Chuck Feeney. In 2020, Jerry Adams recorded an episode of his podcast. It was titled, Thank You, Chuck Feeney. And for those of you who don't know him or have never heard of Chuck, he's an extraordinary human being whose kindness and vision has brought hope and joy to millions. And Chuck made an outstanding financial contribution to the establishment and the running of the Sinn Féin mission in Washington in 1995. And Chuck is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. It's hard to believe that this is the same Jerry Adams who was once accused of advocating for an assassination campaign against foreign businessmen. The distance traveled by him and his party is pretty remarkable. Adams' first visit to the United States in 1994 was a big opening to an eventful year. On the last day of August, NBC reported this news. Tonight, hope that peace may finally be at hand in Northern Ireland. After a violent quarter-century struggle against British rule, the Irish Republican Army has announced a ceasefire. Clinton eventually fulfilled his other campaign promise, too. The one he'd made to Ray Flynn, the mayor of Boston. He appointed George Mitchell as a special envoy to Northern Ireland. Just a few days after the ceasefire announcement, there was a first meeting between a Sinn Féin delegation and officials from the Northern Ireland office, who negotiated on behalf of the British government. Adams began making regular trips to the United States, but he wasn't the only one who'd been granted a visa. Joe Cahill, after all of his years of sneaking into the U.S. illegally, had finally been given official permission to travel to the United States. And he used it to visit Norid chapters to sell the IRA ceasefire. The visa issue seems sort of small when you look at it against the broad sweep of the conflict and the peace process. But it was important. It gave Irish Republicans in the U.S. a small bit of leverage over two major enemies, the British and the U.S. State Department. By getting Clinton to make a promise on visas, they initiated a series of events. It was slow and incremental, but it eventually drew the Clinton administration into the conflict. And in a sense, this is what Norrie had been arguing for since the 1970s. Of course, they didn't do it alone, and they needed senators like Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd, who had real political muscle for the final push. But Irish Northern Aid played an important part.
Less than two years after Adams landed in New York City, Bill Clinton and his family landed in Belfast. He was the first sitting American president to visit Northern Ireland. Moving from ceasefire to peace requires dialogue. For 25 years now, the history of Northern Ireland has been written in the blood of its children and their parents. The ceasefire turned the page on that history. It must not be allowed to turn back. A few days after this speech, the British and Irish governments sent separate invitations to eight parties in Northern Ireland. They were invited to join in preliminary peace talks. These meetings would be chaired by Clinton's envoy, George Mitchell. And over the next two years, they would slowly lead to the Good Friday Agreement. From NBC News World Headquarters in New York, this is NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. Good evening. It is Good Friday and the beginning of Passover, two of the most significant holidays in the religious calendar. And tonight, the world is witness to events that symbolize these holidays, despair and hope, renewal and deliverance. We begin tonight with the news that three decades of Irish killing Irish may be at an end. This was all pretty heady stuff. It was unsubtle and overblown. But that's how it was played on TV. The peace process would drag on for years. One of the main sticking points was what the IRA and other paramilitary groups would do with their stockpile of weapons. How would they decommission? How would they put them beyond use, to use the IRA's delicate euphemism? Ed Maloney, a veteran Irish journalist, put it bluntly. The idea that you would decommission at the behest of the person that you're fighting this war against uh, is an act of surrender, no matter how you look at it, okay? No matter how you dress it up. And they have Al-Qaeda to thank for that. The September 11th attacks jump-started the process. In an instant, it wiped out any real remaining sympathy for armed struggle. To Americans, the balaclava no longer represented the struggle for Irish freedom. Instead, it was the symbol of terror. And as the United States began to hunt down al-Qaeda, George W. Bush drew a stark dividing line. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. At the beginning of the global war on terror, the provisionals had to choose which side they wanted to be on. It changed everything, 9-11. Um, and changed the peace process, made the peace process uh, work, um, and hastened the day for you know, ending all of the weapons, destroying them all. A system was put in place so the IRA could destroy their weapons in secret. The process involved getting religious officials from the Catholic and Protestant churches to testify that they had witnessed the weapons being destroyed. The details weren't made public, but it probably involved digging deep ditches, piling in the guns, and then sealing them with concrete. Then, on July 28, 2005, the IRA sent out copies of a homemade DVD. On it was a video of a representative from the IRA who read out a statement in front of a hedge and a drooping Irish flag. All IRA units have been ordered to dump arms. All volunteers have been instructed to assist the development of purely political and democratic programs through exclusively peaceful means. Volunteers must not engage in any other activities whatsoever.
It was an anticlimactic end to nearly 30 years of unbelievable violence that destabilized daily life across the entire country. Over 3,000 people were killed and thousands more were injured. To a U.S. audience, it might be difficult to fully grasp how much this affected average people on the island of Ireland. But to put this in an American scale, it would be like almost 25,000 people dying every year from political violence for three decades. And at the end of it, the Provisionals, like other iterations of the IRA, gave up their weapons and joined the government. There were holdouts in both the Republican and Loyalist movements, and even some large attacks, but the peace held. In 2007, the British Army withdrew its last troops from the island. They'd been there for 38 years. You would think that with the IRA's armed struggle coming to an end, Norid would just cease to exist. They'd always said that their reason for being was to support the provost. And now they had laid down their arms and fully joined the political process. The few people who wanted to continue the fight had defected to smaller armed groups years before. In the United States, the Friends of Sinn Féin had taken Norid's place as fundraisers for the party, and interest in the political questions of Northern Ireland had faded away in the Irish-American community. But Norid and the IRA have had a strange, and perhaps shared, afterlife. Up to now, we've been covering pretty settled history and have been telling these stories in a fairly detached way. But as we move closer to the present, it seems important to shift into a different mode and to explain how I first heard about Irish Northern Aid. It started in 2014, when I read Ed Maloney's book, a Secret History of the IRA. It's a great piece of journalism, and it gives an important and controversial account of the development of the IRA and the trajectory of Jerry Adams. It's over 700 pages long and covers a lot of ground. But I saw several references to Irish Northern Aid, and I needed to know more. So I looked them up online and found their website, irishnorthernaid.com. It's very Web 1.0. If you ever made or visited a GeoCities page in the 1990s, you'll see the resemblance. And they've also got a phone number, 1-800-IRELAND. In the 90s, Norrie stopped filing as a foreign agent with the Department of Justice. Enough time had passed that despite a court ruling, it seems like the DOJ just wasn't interested in pursuing them anymore. Peace was in the air. In any case, there aren't any publicly accessible filings after 1990. But 10 years later, in 1999, they received nonprofit status from the Internal Revenue Service. If you get that designation, it means you don't have to pay federal income taxes. But you do have to file yearly reports on your finances, and those are made available to the public. Those reports are called 990s, and you can find them online for almost every American nonprofit, including Irish Northern Aid. And that's how I got really interested. look at their filings from the early 2000s, you see a significant decline in donations and revenue. In 2004, they made almost $200,000. In 2005, it was about $100,000. In 2006, it was around $88,000. And by 2009, they were down to $19,315. 
And that makes sense, right? This is after 9-11. The troubles seem to be ending. And above-board fundraising and political activities were being handled by the Friends of Sinn Féin. As a comparison, the year Norad made just $19,000, the Friends of Sinn Féin made over $470,000. All of this tracks. It's what we'd expect. But something weird happened in 2010. Money started coming into Irish Northern Aid. A lot of money. $742,000. And then the next year, it happened again. They got $585,000. That means between 2010 and 2011, Norad received contributions amounting to $1.3 million. So what was going on with Norad in 2010 and 2011? Well, on paper, not a lot. They didn't have any public events. They don't appear to have had any large single donors writing them a big check. On their rickety webpage, they didn't even have a button where you could donate. In fact, they didn't have any information on how you could donate or what your money would even be used for if you did. They didn't sell any property or have any big investment windfalls, but still, somehow, they got $1.3 million. And we know most of this just from looking at their own tax filings. But there's a little bit more information buried in the documents. And again, it's really weird. In 2010, they reported that the $732,000 came from, get this, a government grant. According to their filings, some federal or state agency gave almost three quarters of a million dollars to an organization that has almost no public presence and had once been forced by the U.S. government to name itself as the foreign agent of the Irish Republican Army. In the filing, there's no information on what agency gave the grant. And I called everyone I could think of, and I sent out freedom of information requests, but I couldn't find any evidence of it. But there's still another question. Where did it all go? Again, we can see some of it in the financial documents. In 2010, Norad reported that they invested $508,201 in publicly traded securities. They basically moved the cash into stocks. The next year, 2011, they got that second influx of money. But instead of socking it away, they gave a cash grant of $534,000 to a nonprofit called the United Irish Appeal. The UIA is an interesting group. You won't see it in any histories of the Troubles or investigations of IRA fundraising. But it's basically a parallel NORAID, a shadow NORAID. For years, the two organizations shared almost identical boards of directors. The FBI spotted this back in 1993, a year after the UIA was established. In a secret report, they wrote that the organization was developed in order to foster, quote, an image more closely associated with promoting peace and would be a way for wealthier Irish Americans to receive a tax write-off themselves. So what did the UIA do with the $534,000 that they got from Norad in 2011? Well, we know that at least some of it went to Northern Ireland. I found their name in a small community newsletter in Belfast, where they paid for a mural commemorating the New Lodge massacre. And they've also been involved with a small grant-making program that is connected to a Sinn Féin politician named Martino Mulyer, he makes frequent trips to the United States and owns one of the major Irish-American newspapers. He was also the Lord Mayor of Belfast. But most of the money went into publicly traded securities, just like Irish Northern Aid. 
By 2013, the two organizations had a total of $825,000 invested, with an additional $384,000 held in cash. But we still don't really know where most of this money came from, or where it went. And all of this raises an even more central question. Why does Norid even exist as this empty husk, years after the troubles came to an end? The IRA has had its own strange afterlife, and as with Irish Northern Aid, it's got a lot to do with money. In 2017, Isabel Woodford and MLR Smith published a forensic report that sketches out how the IRA made money throughout the Troubles. They point out that Irish Northern Aid was really only a part of a much larger, highly diversified fundraising model. This is Isabel Woodford. The IRA were quite a sophisticated financing machine by, by kind of the mid-70s, 80s. And there was kind of compounded evidence, actually, that, that NORAID hadn't been the main source of financing, actually, for the IRA. That US money contributed no more than 20%. And so the next question then was, where did they get that money and where did they manage to finance this kind of war machine, if you like? Um, and, and, and the kind of the, the evidence I presented was that they had this, this domestic financing operation made up of everything from illegal drinking clubs kidnappings, black cabs, and armed robberies. I've thought a lot about that last one. Around the time I first heard about Irish Northern Aid, the Belfast Telegraph published an article about a bank robbery. It took place about 10 years earlier, in 2004, in Belfast. It was a highly organized operation, It involved kidnapping, safe houses, multiple vehicles, and crates upon crates of money. At the time, it was one of the largest bank robberies in UK history, over 26.5 million pounds. That's $33 million. This was an operation that required uh, an awful lot of planning and an awful lot of people involved, one way or another. This is Ed Maloney again. From doing the heist itself, taking away hostages, getting rid of the money, etc. The circle of knowledge must have been huge. According to the police service of Northern Ireland, there was only one criminal operation with the skills and resources to pull off something like this. The Provisional Irish Republican Army. But why'd they do it in the first place? There were a couple theories. One is that it was supposed to be a bit of a pension plan for IRA volunteers. Or maybe it was going to fund Sinn Féin's political campaigns. Or maybe it wasn't really about the money. It could have been a way of flexing some muscle during the peace negotiations to make clear that the IRA was still capable of major operations. Or maybe it was some combination of all of these reasons. We don't really know, and maybe we never will. In the years that followed, there were a few arrests connected to the robbery, and a portion of the money was recovered. Some of it was found in a duffel bag at a police athletic club, and some of it was found in a compost pile behind the house of a financial advisor connected to Sinn Féin. But most of it is still missing. In 2010, a classified diplomatic cable from the U.S. State Department was released by WikiLeaks. It had originally been written in 2010. In it, the U.S. ambassador, James Kenney, wrote that the Irish police thought they'd uncovered a money laundering scheme that was connected to the robbery. It involved businessmen who were former members of the IRA. They'd opened bank accounts and registered companies in Bulgaria that were then used to clean the stolen money. 
these same businessmen had helped the provost build up a fortune by investing it in residential and commercial property across the world. According to Isabel Woodford, the IRA had been developing their money laundering schemes since the late 1980s. It took the IRA kind of some time to get that up and running. Um, and uh, in my paper, I talk about a sophisticated fraud network that, that emerged in the 1980s, which again, the British Army had kind of identified, if not infiltrated. She found that for decades, the IRA had been mastering the art of registering new properties and new companies under clean business fronts, which could then invest the money on behalf of the provisionals. Now, if you wanted to launder money from a bank robbery or any other illegal fundraising activity, you could do worse than enlisting not one, but two supposedly defunct American nonprofits to do it. Irish Northern Aid and United Irish Appeal had been connected to Sinn Féin and the IRA for decades. They were no longer being closely monitored and now had nonprofit status. The Internal Revenue Service is notoriously understaffed and spends extremely little time policing nonprofit tax filings. You'd think it'd be easy to get somebody from NORAID or the UIA to explain where all the money came from. But I couldn't. I tried emailing and calling Marianne Reynolds, who was the NORAID treasurer. I'm not going to discuss any of this stuff with you, okay? I tried calling Paul Doris, the president of NORAID. He wouldn't answer. I requested an interview with his niece, Michelle O'Neill, She's the head of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. No response. I did actually get an interview with a man named Michael Cummings. He was involved with NORAID for years, and he was on the board of directors of the UIA in 2011, the year they got that big transfer from Irish Northern Aid. I don't remember them ever raising uh, much more than 150 to 250,000 in a given year. He couldn't explain where the money had come from or gone to. If it's saying that there's 1.2 million Boy, that's not any number I've ever heard. I have no, I don't know what to say. After the interview, he emailed me and said that he felt that I'd set him up. He suggested that I might be working for a foreign entity, which is a big claim to make since that was the allegation that was hurled against NORAID for so many years. Now, he was a member of the board of the UIA the year the money came in, so it's surprising he can't come up with any explanation for it. But the last thing that stuck out to me from his email was the following sentence, quote, I will leave it to the IRS and others to ascertain if the funds for UIA have been properly spent, end quote. This is a weird claim. He could have just said that the funds were both properly received and spent. In fact, why would you leave it to others? Why not defend your own organization? He could have easily put to bed the questions about where the money came from and where it went, but he didn't. Now, I don't want to get carried away. None of this means that the money that mysteriously showed up in NORAID and the UIA's accounts was from the Northern Bank robbery or from any other illegal activity. Tracking money is just like an impossible task. I don't even know if the IRA were able to keep track of every dollar uh, or every pound that they were they were kind of organizing or collecting or creating. Um, but but yes, I mean money flows are famous, notoriously difficult to track, and it continues to be a problem now with modern terrorism groups as well. 
What Isabel's research makes clear is that the IRA was always incredibly diversified when it comes to illegal fundraising. Properties, investments, shell companies. If the money that ended up in Norade's accounts did come from the IRA or its related activities, it'd be almost impossible to trace it all the way back. But it's still the case that, if anything, the source that they do report, those unnamed government grants, well, that would be more extraordinary than if the group had been resuscitated to launder some money. As a coda to this whole thing, we can see that Norade and the UIA have recently had their nonprofit status revoked for not filing their tax documents. It means that the paper trail is pretty much at an end. But while going over those old filings for this podcast, I saw that in 2021, a new Norad branch in Connecticut received nonprofit status from the IRS. Maybe we'll see something interesting in their filings in the years to come. For Sinn Féin, the march to power continues. In the 2010s, they worked hard to recast their public image as a modern social democratic organization. They focused on more technocratic policies around sustainable development, urban planning, and the education system. The question of a united Ireland moved into the background. They didn't hide their commitment to reuniting the island, but they didn't lead with it anymore. Although Sinn Féin often presents itself as left-wing, especially on housing issues, in recent years it has staked out more conservative positions on abortion, austerity, and criminal justice when it served their political interests. I think this might come as a surprise to people in the United States, where there's a sense, especially among activists, that Sinn Féin is a left-wing party. Well, they should be disabused of that. This is Ed Maloney again. Because, you know, this is an organization which is pragmatic. That's the only thing that really guides its navigation. And also, you know, uh, the ultimate goal of achieving power. They really don't have a fixed ideology, you know. I mean, they're already, like, with a a general election on the horizon in, in, in the south of Ireland, right? They are, you know, sharpening their pencils for this and ad- adapting and changing their policies accordingly. Just like, what do we have to do to win? Not, this is what we believe and this is what we're going to try and sell and try to do when we get into power. It's, what do we have to do to get into power? So that's a very, very different type of politics than what they originally represented, you know? So that has been the huge change, you know? Extraordinary way for the thing to end. It probably would have been decades before the Northern Ireland question came up again in a meaningful way. Ireland and the UK were both in the European Union. People and goods could move freely between the two. What had once been a hard border guarded by troops and police was now just a line on a map. In some ways, you could say that the island was functionally united. But in 2016, borders came back into fashion. Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. For many people, this is an astonishing moment of hope, a moment they thought would never come. This is the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. The most important thing to say tonight is that this is not an end, but a beginning. This is the moment when the dawn breaks and the curtain goes up on a new act in our great national drama. Johnson couldn't have known how right he was. Brexit was just a beginning. And for many Irish nationalists, the curtain is going up on a new act of their national drama. Although Brexit was unpopular in Northern Ireland, it was backed by the Democratic Unionist Party, which was in power at the time. They did so, apparently, without thinking through how it could affect the delicate equilibrium. On January 30th, 2020, the United Kingdom officially left the EU, and the DUP struggled to implement the new rules over freedom of movement, trade, and security. 
At the moment, the law stipulates that a sea border will divide Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. This means that goods that pass back and forth will undergo regulatory checks, as if they were from another country. This will allow trade between the Republic of Ireland and the North to continue, more or less, as it has up until now. But this is anathema to Unionists. It carves the six counties out as a distinct economic and political unit from the rest of the United Kingdom. And so they've demanded an end to the sea border. But that could result in a trade war with Europe. Sinn Féin watched all of this very carefully. They opposed Brexit, and in its aftermath, they've taken left populist positions, which seem to have pretty broad appeal. The political landscape in Northern Ireland is on the verge of historic change, with Sinn Féin set to take the most seats at the Stormont Assembly for the first time. The party's vice president, Michelle O'Neill, who's expected to be the next first minister, called it a defining moment. As the BBC reported on May 5th of 2022, Sinn Féin, for the first time, became the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. If they're able to form a government, they'll get a chance to set the agenda for legislation in the North. But at the moment, it's unclear if that will happen because of the intransigence of the DUP. The election was historic, but as Ed Maloney mentioned earlier, there's another one coming up. In the South, in the Republic, the next countrywide election will be held sometime before February 2025, and currently Sinn Féin is polling extremely well. It's possible, and perhaps at this moment even likely, that by 2025, Sinn Féin could be in power in both the North and the South of Ireland. This would be a democratic mandate that they haven't had since 1918. Now, just because Sinn Féin's electoral prospects seem to be on the rise, it does not mean that a united Ireland is a given. The Good Friday Agreement sets up the terms of how this might come about. First, the UK's Northern Ireland office has to determine if there's political appetite for a referendum on a united Ireland. If, for example, opinion polls suggest that there is, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, which is a British official, can call for a referendum. Two, actually. One in the North and one in the South. It seems likely that the South would vote for reunification, but the North, as its own entity, has to do the same. With Sinn Féin in power, it's possible to be able to rally voters to that cause, but by the same token, if they do a poor job governing, it's possible they'll drive voters away. Still, the political field is open in a way that it hasn't been in the modern era, and Sinn Féin is a central player. For some people, this is exactly what the long trajectory of Irish nationalism and republicanism has been about. But for many of the people we've looked at in this series, it's exactly the opposite. It reeks of failure and betrayal. Brendan Hughes, the IRA commander who went to the U.S. for Armalites in the 1970s, was one of them. In the early 2000s, he publicly broke with Adams and Sinn Féin and remained a critic until his death. Here's what he said in an interview in July 2002. For the record, is there any ones that you would care name in it who you would have liked to have shot? Terry Adams. Do you feel that strongly now? Yeah. Yeah, I believe that he's betrayed the whole Republican uh, principles, morality. For Michael Flannery, who was the figurehead of Irish Northern Aid, Sinn Féin in the 1990s was just repeating the treacheries of the past. They were doing great until uh, Jerry Adams, who is now uh, president of Sinn Féin, got the same, exactly the same idea. Let us go in and take over the doll. 
Well, it'd be very foolish, I think, to take the parliament over. Michael Flannery never stopped believing that there could be no end to British rule, except through force of arms. George Harrison, the communist gunrunner, thought the same. In 2004, when decommissioning was underway, he was asked what he would say to young Irish Republicans. Do you have advice for the young people in Ireland? Do you have advice for the young people well, in the United have States? Advice to uh, hold on to their guns, because that's the only uh, way we'll ever achieve our independence, and to spread out and get all the support they can, too. You know, the rank and file support. Flannery died in 1994, just a few months after the first IRA ceasefire. At his funeral at Mount St. Mary Cemetery in New York, a volley of shots was fired over his casket in the IRA tradition. He was memorialized below the fold on the front page of Norrie's newspaper, The Irish People. Above the fold was an article about Jerry Adams' latest visit to New York and a telephone chat with Al Gore. George Harrison lived until 2004 in Brooklyn. He remained a revolutionary to the end. Bill Mogulescu, who was part of his defense team in the 1982 gun running trial, said that he believed that if a 32-county republic was ever established in Ireland, George would have immediately begun plotting to overthrow its government. Most of the first generation of Norid activists are also dead. The younger cohort are in their 60s. And they may live to see a united Ireland, but it's not a given, even with Sinn Féin in power. If the past couple of years have shown us anything, it's that history returns in unpredictable ways. The story of Norade is the story of the Troubles, as seen through American eyes. The organization rose with the Provos. It was founded by veterans of the Irish Civil War, but over time it drew in thousands of Irish Americans. It cemented a sense of self linked to the armed struggle. It was an identity that appealed to working and middle-class Irish Americans in the post-civil rights world. Like the anti-imperialists of the New Left, they were able to displace their politics onto a faraway national liberation struggle. But they weren't naive or misled. They understood the conflict and chose a side. And they leveraged whatever influence they had to support the Republican cause and wield political power at home. Although the election of JFK marked the complete ascendance of the Irish in America, during and through the Troubles, the meaning of that ascendance was reshaped. You only have to compare the image of JFK addressing the Irish Parliament to that of Jerry Adams at the White House to measure the incredible distance traveled. And that distance has been the basis of the story that we've been trying to tell. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarro Media, and music is by Matt Huxley. The interview recorded with Michael Flannery is courtesy of the Tamament Library at New York University. The interview with Brendan Hughes is from the film Voices from the Grave, and is courtesy of Ed Maloney. The interview with George Harrison was recorded by Matthew Siegfried in 2004. To end this series, we'd like to thank the following people for their contributions. Dove Weinberg Groskow, Kirsten Monroe, Chris O'Kane, Claire DeVogue, Ariel Angel, Wilson Sherwin, Josh Nathan Kazis, Sam McBride, Zach Vary, Donal Foreman, Colin Archdeacon, Chelsea Converse, Corey Eastwood, Jamie Weiss, Stephen Methven, Craig Gent, and Shaw Ravens. <laughs>